This is The Guardian. Today, British banks and politicians have sheltered Russian wealth for decades. Can the system be cleaned up? A few years ago, the writer Oliver Bullough started running tours in London. So we put people in a bus. We would start on the embankment just down from the Houses of Parliament. This wasn't your regular sightseeing bus. Because uh, Putin's former deputy prime minister had a duplex apartment there. They called them kleptocracy tours. We would drive into Belgravia point out oligarchs' houses, the houses of children of oligarchs. Sometimes we'd go up into North London. There's a, the second biggest house in London after Buckingham Palace, actually, belongs to a former member of the Russia's Upper House of Parliament, the Russian fertiliser magnate. So, I mean, the idea was to reveal the sort of hidden side of London, really. And as he looked, he realised that the signs of that hidden Russian money were everywhere. I heard an amazing statistic, which is that the turnover of Harrods, you know, one shop in Knightsbridge, is greater than the turnover of the entire British fishing fleet. It's just, I mean, how how do you compute that? I mean, that much money being spent, I mean, I don't know, if you walk through Harrods, it's perfectly nice, but but the stuff they sell, it's, it's toys, right? It's bling, it's clothing. Right? How do you spend that much money on that kind of stuff? If you stand opposite Harrods, you can see three different Rolex shops. You don't even need to cross the road to buy a Rolex. You know, it's absolutely extraordinary what is for sale and what is available if you want to spend money. In the past week, as Russia has launched a deadly invasion of Ukraine, Boris Johnson and other world leaders have announced tough sanctions. Clearly, uh, it's time to, to bring in some tough sanctions against the, uh, the Russian regime, against uh, big Russian uh, companies, organisations of strategic importance. And they also... say these sanctions will hit President Vladimir Putin and his inner circle where it hurts, in their pockets. But given the UK's long history of welcoming and protecting Russian wealth, is this too little too late? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, is it possible to root out dodgy Russian money from the UK? The House should be in no doubt that the deployment of these forces in sovereign Ukrainian territory amounts to a renewed invasion of that country. Oliver, you've been writing about Russian money in London for a long time and calling for much tougher measures to track that money and to stop it being invested in the UK. Rossiya, IS Bank, General Bank, Promzias Bank and the Black Sea Bank. And What's it been like to see this cascade of new financial policies against Russian wealth in the past week? It's genuinely extraordinary. I moved to Russia in 1999 after university. I lived there for six or seven years. And a lot of 
what made Putin popular is that in the early years of his reign, that was he, I moved there about two weeks after he took over, actually, he managed to undo a lot of the really bad things about the Russian economy. He managed to make the ruble strong or respected. He managed to bring in foreign investors. He managed to make the country relatively stable and predictable, you know, make sure salaries were paid on time, things like that. All of that's gone in a week. The Russian ruble tanked on Monday, falling to record lows. The currency's value dropped nearly 30 percent as the that West prompted the Russian central bank to more than double its key interest rate from nine and a half to 20 percent. And uh, we can see that these sanctions are already having an impact, economically speaking. If we just take a look at the scenes that we've seen over the weekend, those long queues, ordinary Russian people trying to get their cash out. BP but, uh, has pulled out. The signature foreign investor in Russia has pulled out. The ruble. You know, for me, like the natural value of the ruble, just what I'm used to is 28 rubles to the dollar. I think now it's something like 120. That's extraordinary. But what really worries me is that the impact of these sanctions are going to be felt by ordinary Russians, not by the oligarchs. Because who really suffers when a currency collapses? It's people who buy imported food and so on. You know, and if you look at the structure of the Russian economy, it is incredibly unequal, like insanely unequal, so unequal it makes you know, America look like an egalitarian paradise. There's about you know, four or 500 people basically own everything in Russia. Four or 500 people out of a country of how many? 145 million. So, so the richest 500 people own more wealth between them than the bottom 99.8% of the Russian population. Now, unusually for uh, any country, those people own most of that wealth, not in Russia, but outside Russia. They have sent their money abroad. And the reason for that is that oligarchs don't trust each other any more than they trust us. And so we have a situation whereby these sanctions are being very damaging to Russia, as was intended. But the richest people around, around Putin, the people who have really made money from Putin, half of their wealth is offshore and therefore untouched by this because that wealth is in dollars or pounds or euros or whatever. So you know, when this terrible period ends, and hopefully it will at some stage. And, you know, they'll be able to look at Russia, everything will be insanely cheap, because the ruble will have collapsed, and they'll be able to buy anything they don't already own. The Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, says that she's got a hit list of people upon whom the UK government could bring sanctions. Uh, We have compiled a hit list of oligarchs. We're working through and putting the cases together. And every few weeks, we will sanction new oligarchs. From the first wave of announcements, are there any that have stood out to you? Yeah, so the the main individuals which have really stood out have been uh, Gennady Tymchenko, who who is a very old friend of Putin's, and then a couple of members of the Rottenberg family, uh, which, again, very old friends of Putin's from pre-presidential days. And that's all very well. You know, it's good that they've been sanctioned. But these were people who've been sanctioned by the US now for, what, six years, I think? So they won't really have any assets outside Russia now anyway, because if you're sanctioned by the US, that basically means sanctioned everywhere. You know, we need a much broader list of sanctioned individuals. Alexei Navalny, the Russian anti-corruption activist who's currently on trial again, you probably remember his, his last trial, he was put on trial for missing his bail conditions. The reason he missed his bail conditions is he was in a coma recovering from the effects of Novichok poisoning. So, you know, he is a, you know, a man who is 
it's a it's a sort of takes Kafkaesque to the, to a new level what's being done to him. He's he's got a list of thirty five people that were read out by Leila Moran. Now there's a problem outside of this chamber with naming these individuals because many of them have very deep pockets and very expensive lawyers. And Lib Dem MP in Parliament uh, a couple of weeks ago under parliamentary privilege. But I'm going to use my privilege to name them all, Madam Deputy Speaker, all thirty five. Because I think it is important that we have these names, and I've checked it with the clerks. I'll, I'll, to really if they were sanctioned, that would be good. Um, but we also need to sanction their family members because they don't just use shell companies to disguise their ownership of wealth. They also use family members, or if you will, human shell companies to disguise their wealth. Those are the kind of things that would really have an effect on the circuit around Putin. You know, I'm not saying the sanctions that have come in so far haven't had an effect. You know, obviously, for oligarchs who own banks or own any company that tries to export or import from Russia, you know, these, these sanctions are crippling, but they won't harm the wealth that they have stored outside of Russia. And on top of the sanctions, the government announced on Monday that it would be introducing a new economic crime bill. Can you just lay out for me what that's going to entail? As, as I understand it, the economic crime bill is, is some measures which they've been promising off and on for years. And you know, there's this dread phrase when parliamentary time allows, which means it's like a, it means never, but it's just a nice way of saying never. They've been promising this forever. The two key measures in the economic crime bill from, from this perspective are one, to impose transparency on offshore owned properties in the UK. There are almost 90,000 properties in the UK owned via offshore companies. So we don't know who their true owners are. It would force those companies to reveal who their true owners are. And the second measure supposedly, is to impose order on companies' house. Companies' houses are corporate registry, and it's a giant mess um, in that you can just log on, create a company anytime, say anything, no one checks. And you could create, I could create a company in your name, you know, and the first thing you'd know about it is when the police turned up to ask why you'd just laundered a hundred million pounds. And that it is because of this mess that British shell companies have always been used in the biggest money laundering schemes. You know, the Danske Bank scandal when 200 billion euros was moved out of the former Soviet Union, you know, via the Danske Bank's Estonia branch to who knows where, the biggest accounts were all hidden behind British structures. Moldova laundromat, when 15% of Moldovan GDP was stolen, again, via British shell company, Scottish Limited Partnerships in that case. You know, we've known about this for years and years and years. And governments have not only not done something about it, but actively stood in the way of doing something about it. How did the British banking system become so entwined, so, I don't know, would you say enriched with Russian money? I'm briefly going to go really far back in time to answer that question. Okay, we like a history lesson. The city of London was the motor of the of the British Empire. In, in in many ways, the British Empire was not really the British Empire, but the city of London's empire. The colonies tended to be explored by companies, the East India Company, you know, the Muscovy Company, that, that were trading companies out of the city of London. They later became, you know, colonies owned by Britain, but they began as trading places. But after the Second World War, that all collapsed. The British Empire was kind of no more, you know, and you had this financial engine with no car to drive. So I'm taking this metaphor a bit far. Inside the classical banks are liveried messengers with top hats. But there are also newfangled devices such as telephones. You are at the heart of commerce. You are also at the heart of history. 
So, you know, the, the bankers in the City of London, you know, looked around for a new revenue stream. And interestingly, they found that revenue stream thanks to the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union had dollars, which they needed to trade internationally, but they didn't trust the US government. So they wanted to keep them somewhere that wasn't under US jurisdiction. So they put them in London. And essentially, London bankers realized that if they took these dollars, they called them euro dollars because they were outside the US and Europe, and, and used them, then miraculously, all the restrictions on financial movements, which were very strict back then, it was a time when there was really strong oversight of capital, all those restrictions fell away. The Bank of England didn't regulate them because they weren't pounds. And the US government didn't regulate them because they weren't in the US. And this is the birth of Britain's, easily Britain's most consequential invention of the 20th century, if not ever, which is offshore finance. And it was born from a joint venture between Moscow and London. But rapidly, others piled in. It became, it was so profitable to have this sort of strings-free money that you, no, one, no one had any rules over that, it, you know, it really totally shook up the world. So this Russian-Soviet involvement in, in the offshore world isn't a post-1991, a post-communism thing. It was happening beforehand. So as soon as communism collapsed, the money could flow more freely, but it was just flowing through channels that already existed. Then what happened when Putin took office? It really became turbocharged under Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin became prime minister in 1999 and then president in 2000. And he managed to bring the Russian economy under the control of him and his close circle of friends. He, he, he uh, prosecuted various sort of independent minded business people. And his time Certainly the first sort of eight, nine years of his time in, in power coincided with a period of very, very high oil prices. And oil is Russia, one of Russia's main exports. So it wasn't just that, you know, he managed to bring a lot of the, sort of the money in-house into his group of friends, which he did, but he also did it at a time when suddenly there was a lot more money around coming out of Russia than there had been previously. So it was a real golden period for the oligarchs. Any oligarch who'd managed to come out of the 90s with a significant, you know, st- previously state-owned asset that that you know produced natural resources was absolutely you know minting it and a lot of those people brought their money to london and one of the reasons for that was because london is not just a lovely place to spend your money which it is but it's also a really safe place to spend your money because the origins of that money are not investigated our law enforcement agencies are extremely underfunded you know at a really generous estimate all of our law enforcement agencies dealing with financial crime and kleptocracy are funded by about to about forty-three million pounds a year. That I mean, that's probably an overestimate. Most ec- experts think that that needs to be as a minimum double to have any kind of chance of going up against oligarchs. So these people were kind of friends or associates of Putin's. Did the UK government do anything to particularly incentivize or welcome them? to come and invest in the UK? Yeah, so the, the, the golden visa scheme, what, what's known as the tier one investor scheme, it used to have a, a different name before 2008, was a scheme brought in in the 1990s. You know, UK wasn't alone in doing this. Canada and the US did it first. But it, it became a, um, a very successful scheme for bringing in particularly Chinese and Russian investors into the UK. If you had £2 million to invest in British government bonds, then, you know, you were given essentially residency. Um, you, you got to sidestep the queue, which normally people have to stand in in order to get residency in this country. And then once you've had residency for five years, that becomes indefinitely for remain and that becomes citizenship. Right. So, so, so the UK government founded a system that enabled people to just bypass 
the whole immigration scheme to a large extent just to to buy their way in to the UK. Yeah, particularly alarmingly, until 2015, that money could come from anywhere in the world. So, you know, it, it came from financial institutions, which it was perfectly possible did absolutely no checks at all on the origin of wealth. After 2015, the money had to be paid in via a British bank. So the, the government still didn't do any checks itself. And, and what's particularly alarming about the, the pre-2015 period was that the existence of that vi- visa would then be used as proof and as justification for why they should be allowed a British bank account. Because once they'd come here and the government had approved them, they were presumably fine and they could get a British bank account. So you ended up with this sort of self-reinforcing system. And that, I, I mean, briefly, I want to say, you know, we, we focus on, on Russia often in these conversations for obvious reasons at the moment. But Chinese people have been a far greater purchasers of golden visas and, in fact, London property than Russian people over the years. And it may well be we're storing up other problems for ourselves. You know, this isn't just a Russia problem. And as you've said, the UK government, successive governments, have known for decades about the problems caused by offshoring by this type of Russian investment. Haven't they tried to sort it out before now? I mean, David Cameron, for, you know, for all his faults, was was good on this issue and he, he became very concerned about corruption and unexplained wealth orders were a response to a real problem, which is that if you are trying to prove money of which is from overseas is of criminal origin, you need evidence from overseas. Essentially, you're asking the Kremlin to give a British court evidence against the Kremlin, and and it's never going to do that. So an unexplained wealth order was designed to essentially flip the burden of proof so that instead of the the police having to show the money was illegal, the person who owned it had to show it was legal. It's a a very good idea. It's a slightly terrifying idea, but it's restricted. It can only be used against organised criminals and, and, you know, politically exposed people from outside of Europe. It's supposed to be a game changer. They called it the McMafia law because it came in around the same time as the TV show McMafia was screwing. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Because of my family background, I've made it a policy not to invest in Russia. It is embarrassing to be Russian these days, but don't ever be ashamed of who you are. Let me guess, you're a gangster. Close. Banker. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they loved it at the time. They were, you know, they were briefing it to all the newspapers. There was a lot of sort of strutting around by government ministers about how this is it. Britain gets tough. You know, they, they brought in this one against this, the wife of an Azeri banker. He'd already been jailed. So it wasn't, it was a bit of a weird one to bring because these were supposed to be against people who couldn't be brought by other means. But then they unleashed a really big one, which was against a Dariga Nazarbayeva and her son, Murali Aliyev, who's the, the, respectively, the daughter and grandson of the, of the former president of Kazakhstan. And she replied to the National Crime Agency. She retained Mishkondorea, the very, very gifted and potent law firm, um, to act on her behalf. Mishkondorea humiliated the National Crime Agency. And now I don't know whether the National Crime Agency had a case. Maybe the case was just bad. But if you read the, the court document, it's very clear that, you know, it was like Manchester City going up against Hereford FC. You know, it was just a total mismatch. Mishkondorea just outthought them out tactic to them, outwitted them, everything. And, and since then, they haven't brought any more cases. When unexplained wealth orders were first brought in, it was estimated that the cost over a decade would be one and a half million pounds. In that case alone, they were liable for costs for the other side of one and a half million pounds. Even good ideas which the government has brought in, like unexplained wealth orders, have been undone by the failure of the government to resource the law enforcement agencies properly. I know I'm a broken record here. I bang on and on and on. But 
you know, we are up against some extremely well-motivated people. They are motivated to defend their wealth. Why does it seem like there's not enough political will then to put more resources towards taking these people on? Is the money that they invest in the UK that important to our economy? It's not overwhelmingly important to the British economy. You know, we could survive without it, but it's overwhelmingly important to a small and extremely well-networked group of people who have connections at the top of you know, it, it is obviously that they're very well networked in the Tory party, but I don't want this to be a party political point. It isn't just the Tory party which is to blame here. You know, Tony Blair, I remember when I lived in St. Petersburg, you know, when the when the missiles were raining down on Grozny, and it was surreal because I, you know, one of my, the people who lived in the room next to me in the student accommodation where I lived was a, a Chechen guy, a good friend of mine called Rustam, and his family were all in Grozny, and he was desperately worried about them. And Tony Blair flew out to meet Putin. I can remember seeing their motorcade driving through the city. You know, successive prime ministers have made a priority over welcoming Russian money um, as opposed to investigating its crime. You know, after the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, killed in 2006 in London with polonium-210, which is perhaps the most deadly substance in existence, a, a horrible, horrible death. After that happened, David Cameron, when he became prime minister, flew out to Moscow to meet you know, the leaders of the Russian state to point out that Britain was still open for business. You know, it, it, it has taken this, an invasion of Ukraine, to make them reevaluate the situation. And to be honest, I won't believe that they really have reevaluated the situation until they've properly resourced the law enforcement agencies. Because you know, these kind of habits that have been formed of accepting this money they don't change just because Boris Johnson has, has made a you know a, a stern speech about how no country is, could conceivably be doing more to tackle you know Russian dirty money. Okay, but with the sanctions that Boris Johnson has introduced, who's going to feel the impact of them? Russians in Russia will be the ones paying the price of sanctions. You know, ordinary Russians, people who can't afford to avoid them, and will be the ones paying the price of sanctions. That is always the nature of sanctions, and that's why it's so important that the sanctions that we come up with should be targeted as much as possible, not at the whole economy and not just at the whole country, but targeted at the people who are to blame. Sadly, the, the country has been captured by a very small number, like I said, you know, literally just a three-figure number of oligarchs who control and own everything. Um, and those are the ones who need to be reined in and essentially um, deprived of their power and their wealth. Because, you know, we're not just I mean, we are doing ourselves a favour by doing this. We're protecting the security of our country and, and the integrity of our democracy if we keep this money out of our country. But we're also doing Russia a favour. You know, the fact that these people have been able to keep their money outside Russia means that they can sort of treat what happens in Russia as a spectator sport. You know, the government decisions in Russia don't really affect them because their wealth will be secure whatever happens. And that's a calculation that, that really needs to be changed. We need to make sure that that the oligarchs also have skin in the game, not just 19-year-old conscripts being sent in on a tank towards Kharkiv where they get taken apart by Ukrainian anti-tank missiles. We need to make sure that oligarchs have skin in the game as well. And the way to do that is by you know, either forcing them to take their money home or by freezing their money here so the only money they have available is at home. Coming up, how dodgy money is corroding our democracy.
Oliver, wouldn't some people say that this money is in ways good for the British economy? I'm sure these oligarchs would argue that they are putting money into British businesses and that here in the UK, they follow the law. So why should we be worried about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the argument that British governments have essentially used for a long time, that, well, it's good for us, so fine. And that's certainly the argument that the, that the Bank of England used back in the 1950s with the birth of offshore, that, you know, this money was was doing us a favour and, you know, let's not worry about anything anywhere else. Um, but there are two responses to that, really. One is that oligarchs don't stop being oligarchs just because they've landed at Heathrow. They want the same things in Britain that they had at home. You know, they want better treatment from the from the law. They want preferential access to politicians. They want to be able to muzzle journalists. You know, they want to skew the system in their favour because that's what they do. That's how they function. Um, that's what they're used to. And they're going to try and achieve those things in this country just like they did at home. And that is a threat to democracy. And, you know, if we want to maintain the integrity of democracy, and frankly, at the moment, I think it needs all the maintaining it can get, then that's a really important point to understand. And the second point is that this money was earned illegally from people who desperately need it. You know, I lived in in Moscow for many years. I had a wonderful time. But it was always this wrenching, weird disconnect when I'd been out in the provinces somewhere and I'd go to these villages with like three old women who were the only people left alive because everyone else had drunk themselves to death, where the healthcare was falling apart, the schools were falling apart, the roads were falling apart. And then I'd go to Moscow and I'd be walked through the middle of town and there was a Bentley showroom and a Maserati showroom and a Ferrari showroom and, you know, these boutiques and these incredibly expensive restaurants. And all of the money that was supposed to be building roads and building schools and maintaining healthcare systems and was being stolen and spent on luxury cars. Um, and yes, that was good for the British automotive industry that built the Bentleys that sold them to the Russian oligarchs. But what was the cost of those Bentleys really? You know, what was the cost, you know, of, of selling the Maseratis or the Rolex watches, or the Patek Philippe's, you know, all of these luxury goods, which have done very well, you know, selling to not just Russian oligarchs, but Chinese oligarchs and Malaysian oligarchs and whoever, the, the money that was spent on those goods should have been spent on real important things like education and, and roads. And that's, that's the issue, really. For me, it's a moral issue. You know, do, do we really want to be making a living like that? So, Oliver, we talked briefly earlier about the sanctions that Boris Johnson has brought on several Russian banks and individuals because of Putin's decision to bring war uh, on Ukraine. To what extent do you think those sanctions will solve the problems that you've outlined? The sanctions aren't going to work in the short term. That requires somehow changing Putin's mind. And that is not something that, that can be achieved tomorrow or the next day. I'm not sure really that the broader problem of you know Britain's business model, I'm not sure that is something that can be solved by sanctions because you know, essentially what we're saying is that you can't bring in illegal dirty money from one country to the UK, from Russia. But we're sort of saying at the same time, well, you can from all the other countries. What we need to do is have a total re-evaluation of how we treat money 
you know, how we treat the owners of money and, how, and, you know, and asking where the money comes from and whether we want it to be here in the first place. We've exported private school education all over the world. We've exported you know, our offshore gambling system. We've exported our shell companies. We've exported lots and lots of things and we've done okay out of it. You know, we've built a new post-imperial business model out of not being the biggest bully on the block anymore, but being the sidekick, the butler to the bully. Um, but it's pretty morally dark way of making a living. And I would really hope that this horrible crisis in Ukraine, and it's desperate, I've got some really close friends in Ukraine and it's desperately worrying, and very close friends in Russia as well, and I'm desperately worried about all of them. And I would really, really hope that something can come out of this, that we in Britain can look ourselves in the mirror and just say that, that is on us as well. That's not just on Putin, it's mostly on Putin, but a good amount of it is also on us. Oliver, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on. That was Oliver Bullo. He's got a new book coming out called Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals. You can pre-order it now. And if you want more from Guardian Podcasts, of course you do, we've got two new ones for you. The first, Politics Weekly UK, is hosted by the award-winning journalist John Harris, and there'll be new episodes of that every Thursday. Then there's the US version, Politics Weekly America, hosted by Jonathan Friedland, who's a Guardian columnist and former Washington correspondent. He'll have new episodes for you every Friday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Casson and sound designed by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Mythily Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 